welcome. Welcome to Rising. I see my producers are trying to sneak some Gen Z slang into the teleprompter, which is low-key sus. <laughs> Robbie, you're too good at it. <laughs> it's nice to see you again, Brianna. Uh, you had an interesting conversation I saw with Russell Brand uh, the other night. I did. It was a pleasure to join him yesterday on his show. We talked about um, the Trump indictment and potential arrest and other broad issues relating to um, kind of the different factions that are emerging on the right, right populism, what's left of left populism these days. It was a good time. It was a good talk. Exciting stuff. Very cool. Well, let's get into our show. What are we talking about today? Well, Robbie, Finland will join NATO today, becoming the 31st member state to join the Western Alliance and ending 70 years of neutrality for the country. The move is set to become official during a ceremony at NATO headquarters in Brussels later today. Finland's admission into, the, into NATO means the alliance now doubled its border with Russia, which Finland shares about 900 miles of border with. Well, NATO head Jan Soltenberg spoke on the news yesterday. Let's watch that. This is a historic week. Tomorrow we will um, welcome Finland uh, as the 31st member of NATO, making Finland safer and our alliance stronger. We will raise the Finnish flag for the first time here at the NATO headquarters. It will be a good day for Finland security, for Nordic security and for NATO as a whole. In a statement released this morning, President Biden said of this expansion, quote, together, strengthened by our newest ally, Finland, we will continue to preserve transatlantic security, defend every inch of NATO territory, and meet any and all challenges we face. Biden also noted that he looks forward to welcoming Sweden into the alliance. Remember, that expansion is currently opposed by NATO member state Turkey. So we are going down the path toward a greater... Uh, sense of confrontation between the uh, more numerous nations of NATO and Russia. Now, look, I understand, obviously, why Finland would maybe change its mind from a neutrality position to we'd like to be part of NATO. Um, I, you have to lay, you know, even as we continue to criticize the U.S. and a lot of NATO's goals, you have to lay some blame Russia's goals backfiring if it wanted to uh, to have countries not join NATO that has backfired because the invasion has made them want to join NATO more. Um, however, it does bring us toward a position of ostensibly having to defend more territory. And it's so it's so rich to hear Biden and others say, yeah, this makes us stronger. Well, what is Finland bringing to this military alliance? Right. What they're bringing is an obligation to defend them. We, the U.S. is on the hook for... We are by far the, the greatest spender of... Of, of money in order to defend, in order to provide weapons, provide resources. Um, our, our European peer countries are not pulling their weight in this confrontation with Russia, even though it's their borders. So, like, thank you, but you're welcome for the obligation to potentially put more resources into defending your country. Right. Keep in mind that despite our involvement, huge amounts of aid to Ukraine. Ukraine was not a NATO country, which did not oblige us to get directly into a military confrontation with another mm -hmm. nuclear power. It would be very different now if something were to happen in Finland. Now, from a more neutral perspective, I think the argument that would be made from Russia's side of things is that the reason that there was an incursion into, an invasion into Ukraine was not 
just because it's not that Finland, you know, mm -hmm. there's no reason for us to want to go and invade Finland. What had happened in Ukraine was that there was a coup, uh, you know, a, an interference with the election and, and undermined the self-determination of the people of Ukraine by the United States. And as a consequence, there was the annexation of Crimea, as a civil war that was ongoing, um, threat to the Russian-speaking populations in Ukraine. There were all of these um, factors that led to Russian involvement in a way that I don't want to say made sense, but there was a trajectory that just, it doesn't exist at all in Finland. So to claim that there is this higher risk profile that requires you to join NATO because of this causal relationship between Russia and Ukraine that just doesn't exist with Russia and Finland, I think is a little bit rich and pretextual. What it starts to feel like is that the relationship between America and so many European countries and so many of its allies is more like a kind of a mob boss defending, you know, getting payouts pay, pay to defend mm -hmm. to defend restaurants in a community or, or, you know, businesses in a community. And, you know, those countries don't invest in their military. They're, they're not required to pay as much of their tax base to holding up this huge military industrial complex. And America comes in and offers that service for everybody as a consequence of them going along with our geopolitical whims, which is why you have countries potentially like like Germany being largely mum on the question of who blew up their $11 billion energy investment, the Nord Stream pipeline, and the like. Right. I, I think uh, I think that's a good metaphor. Except, are, are we even getting as getting much as back. like the uh, mob boss gets when he, you know, the protection racket, yeah. and you do favors for him, and you give him preferential treatment, and you pay him actually? Like, we're on the hook for a lot for defending not just our own country, but all these other countries that are not that that are, are don't have to substantially invest in their own military capacity and yeah. don't have to make uh, contributions to the Ukraine effort the way we're doing it even if it's, even though it's on their borders and primarily concerns their safety yeah. and i'm not sure this is this is an arrangement that Maybe, you know, maybe blob-type national security advisors in the U.S. who think that the goal is to get everybody on the U.S.'s side so we can do whatever we want. Maybe it makes sense to them. I don't think it—I'm not sure it makes sense from, like, a pure economic—from a balance sheet perspective, because we're the— our, our spending here is is, is is enormous. It's gigantic at yeah, a I mean, time the, where we have so many domestic The issues. irony is that it would make sense if there's no actual threat to fill in from Russia. Yes. Right? Which also means that it doesn't make sense for them to join NATO. You know, it, yeah. it, it cuts both ways. It's worth noting that Russia warned it would uh, be forced to take, quote, retaliatory, retaliatory measures to address what it calls security threats created by Finland's membership. This is from um, the AP. It also warned it would bolster forces near Finland if NATO sends any additional troops or equipment to what is its 31st member country. So there we have it, a potential uh, escalation at the border if NATO decides to um, start to send troops along there. We'll see, I guess, in the coming days and weeks if that actually happens. Hopefully that doesn't happen. And again, it speaks to the foolishness with leaving Ukraine in this limbo status. Either just admitting to Ukraine, admitting Ukraine to NATO, or having said Ukraine is absolutely not going to be ad admitted to NATO. Either of those would have been smarter moves from the standpoint of NATO and the U.S. We should have removed that ambiguity so that either they are part of NATO, so they're not going to get invaded by Russia, or Russia d doesn't feel threatened of the eventual addition to NATO. One of those courses of actions would have made much more sense than the, the middle ground, where we're kind of like mad about it and we're sort and we're sort of defending and helping them, but but Russia felt like it could invade. Yeah, and also it's really dumb. Probably staying out of uh, other independent democratic countries 
election processes. Yeah, that will be nice <laughs> in general. So we'll see where this goes. Obviously, the Russian war does not show any signs of slowing at the moment. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see if we're going to hit a point where the Ukrainian forces are just exhausted in terms of what they're even able to to offer in terms of defense. We can keep supplying them with weapons, but at some point there are not going to be able-bodied people to carry those weapons, to fight with them. Uh, you know, Russia can send in another wave and another wave and another wave, even even though its own losses are, are substantial. So, so we, you know, we might be getting to that point in the coming weeks and months, and we'll have to see where it goes from there. But yeah. it's just a, a horrible and bloody conflict that should end with the, we should be doing everything we can to bring to a speedy resolution, even if it's a resolution that frustrates both sides in some way, the results in Ukraine losing some amount of territory, having some territory on the Russian border be neutral or something like that. Um, that, that should be something that we facilitate and make happen. Yeah, it's a, tall, it's a tall order because even the idea of a ceasefire, as we talked about, I think, last week or the week before with was Freedom Party. Was refused by the U.S. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we say we want whatever Ukraine wants, that's what we want. Unless it's a ceasefire. We don't want that. Right. No ceasefire. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising right after this. A growing body of evidence shows U.S. government officials, agencies, and contractors are demanding Facebook and Twitter censor ordinary Americans, according to friend of the show and Twitter Files author Michael Schellenberger. And in his latest reporting, he explains how an influential censorship advocate has admitted that she worked for the CIA. According to the report, since December, a small but growing group of journalists, analysts, and researchers have documented the rise of a censorship industrial complex or network of U.S. government agencies and government-funded think tanks. He goes on. Over the last six years, these entities have coordinated their efforts to both spread disinformation and to censor journalists, politicians, and ordinary Americans. And a key figure in this story? Renee Duresta, research manager of the Stanford Internet Observatory. Duresta has more than anyone else made the public case for greater government-led and government-funded censorship, writing for The New York Times, The Atlantic, Wired, and other major publications, and through public speaking, including on podcasts with Joe Rogan and Sam Harris. Here's Schellenberger on the Joe Rogan experience explaining the background of his report on government censorship. Agency I mentioned that cyber that part of the Department of Homeland Security, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, they changed their website over the last few months to remove references to domestic uh, counter disinformation efforts to emphasize countering foreign disinformation. Mm. They, um, you know, we we talk a lot about this. There's one of the big leaders of the censorship industrial complex is this person named Rene Duresta at Stanford Internet Observatory. Yeah, who we had on. Let's talk about that because uh, I had her on, and what she essentially was talking about was all these Russian troll farms and how interesting it is that they created all these funny memes and they used all these resources to try to shift the narrative and change public opinion on certain things, yeah. and that that it was very effective. Here's more about Renee DeResta herself. In 2017, she is at a consulting firm called New Knowledge that is then caught doing disinformation against an Alabama Trumpian Republican candidate named Roy Moore. They are caught doing fake Facebook pages, accusing Roy Moore of wanting to basically uh, restrict alcohol consumption um, in Alabama, which is a deeply unpopular position, it was false, and also 
uh, creating the perception of Russian bots supporting Roy Moore. Her firm runs that campaign. Afterwards, she sort of tries to distance herself from it, suggests that she wasn't involved, even though when you read the Washington Post and New York Times articles about her, about that, about the scandal, um, she sort of she makes it, it makes it clear that she was actually the person that brought the funding in to run the program and also kind of conceived a much of the strategy. After that, she becomes the top researcher to the Senate intelligence report of 2018 on Russian disinformation in the 2016 election. So she's not not only is she not punished for her role in it, she's rewarded by the Democrats with this incredibly powerful position. Roy, Moy, Roy Moore's Alabama campaign, of course, also uh, dragged down by accusations of pedophilia. Now, DeResta responded to Schellenberger's comments on Rogan and her connection to the CIA, saying, "My purported secret agent double life was an undergraduate as an undergraduate student." Sorry, in an undergraduate student fellowship at CIA ending in 2004, years prior to Twitter's founding. I've had no affiliation since. So, Robbie, what do you make of all of this? It does seem like it's perfectly reasonable to think that Deresta is someone who maybe made too much of Russian troll farms, who bought into the Democratic narrative that wanted to blame Russia for Hillary Clinton's own strategic failures and her 2016 loss, um, that she has a pedigree that is very much in line with kind of mainstream cor corporate libs, et cetera, without there being this um, accusation that because she did an internship at the CIA, that that somehow speaks to a connectedness, mm -hmm. an official uh, c connection between those intelligence agencies and the kind of censorship that we've seen um, in the Twitter files. What do you make of it? Well, obviously, there's nothing you can do but speculate about whether she has ongoing CIA ties. Um, it, it, certainly, we know that Actually, there were employees, very senior employees of companies like Twitter who still had ties to the FBI uh, or had come from the FBI and then were advising the company to adopt moderation policies that were in line with what the FBI was thinking about certain policy mm. issues. Um, Rene Duresta now serves as director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, which, is, which manages uh, manage the Election Integrity Project and also essentially that kind of mutated into the virality project which was constantly in contact with social media companies throughout the pandemic um, urging moderation of uh, of certain of covid content so what i see here what i think is interesting is the enormous um continuity and transformation between the kind of russia hacked the election uh russian bots everywhere election stuff into COVID disinformation mm -hmm. stuff. It's the same cops. Mm -hmm. And that ought to make you pretty pretty um, concerned about what they were policing with respect to COVID, because what they were uh, policing with respect to, uh, particularly the 2016 election, um, did not age well at all. The All these narratives that Trump won because of the influence of Russia on Facebook. Um, that ha that is not aged well. That is not supported. In fact, there's been a lot of good political science, social science research that has shown that is just not the case. Um, that these efforts were much smaller than they were made out to be by researchers like Deresta and mm -hmm. by academics and by the media. Um, the efforts were not were not targeted at the right people, um, that it, it was not, and it's not brainwashing. That's, again, yeah. we get to this point where they, they act like, like, it's, uh, like it's like a James Bond technology or something. Like if you're exposed to the Russian disinformation, like your eyes go all swirly and you're like, <laughs> I will vote the way Russia wants. It's not, it doesn't 
persuasion doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the major similarity between the uh, anal disinformation analysis with the uh, COVID stuff versus the 2016 campaign stuff is that they're not pushing back against fake facts. They're not that they're not pushing back against untruths on the internet. Mm -hmm. They are concerned that true statements will have an influence against their own political interests. Right. Which is not. That's just life. You Which have is to deal in the, with in the trifecta. That's malinformation, right? Exactly. And malinformation is information that's perfectly true, but they, but someone thinks is going to be used in a bad way. Right. So the, the prototypical example I always go to because I got caught in the crossfires of this. Right. The Bernie and black was, people. Right. The, these these memes or what have yeah. you that were talking about poor behavior on the part of the American government against black Americans. And these liberals ostensibly are saying, this is this is misinformation, this is bad. Russia, it's not fair for Russia to say true things about how black people have been underserved by the Democratic mm -hmm. Party and the American government as a whole. No, if you have a concern with that, you've got to address it head on, not rename it and try to ban it from the internet. Whose interest does that actually serve? And it's the same with a lot of what we've learned now about the COVID information, much right. of which has now been proven to be true right. about the protectiveness, for example, of um, uh, having you know the, the immunity from having gotten COVID versus the vaccine immunity, and that was we know from the Twitter files also um, attempted to be banned from the internet, banned from Twitter at the very least. So yeah, how are how is this political faction, however you want to describe them, these centrist liberals, going to get past the idea that they ha they can't just wipe from the internet inconvenient truths that sometimes create obstacles for their uh, electo electoral successes. So I think it's important to do the work that Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi and other people are doing to expose the people at this nexus of academic research, uh, federal uh, agencies like the FBI, uh, Homeland Security, State Department, et cetera, and the mainstream media who are, who are pushing out these narratives about the widespread uh, disinformation often they're implicitly or explicitly suggesting is of foreign origin. Mm -hmm. So it has a, both a, the national security lens and then the COVID lens. And it, I think it's important to understand who these people are, how they're being, if, if they're, if to the extent they're being funded by the government, in some cases they're publicly funded. That some of the disinformation trackers and watchdogs I've criticized on the show who've come after me and other organizations I've worked with, they're State Department funded. Uh, so, yeah. it, it, you know, these people should not, are not beyond scrutiny. And the effect, the pernicious effect they've had on our free speech rights on social media, and, and the, yeah. the glorifying way they've been described in the mainstream media is the other thing. These people are have been lauded as heroes in the New York Times and the Atlantic and on CNN, where they're just you know these are these are the people the new the new you know warriors for the truth who are who are fighting disinformation in like a kind of again a sure. cold war sense because they're they're implying that it's coming from Russia. Sure, I, I guess my my only pushback to all of this would be it feels to me like a much deeper cultural issue than just the intelligence agencies. I think the focus on the intelligence agencies is right mm -hmm. because they have so much power and influence. And we saw that from the Twitter files. But I, I think it's, it was, it's almost too narrow to think about that that way. I was listening to a podcast, um, Jen Briney, she has a podcast called The Congressional Dish where she goes through the entire congressional record and a level of detail that most people don't, don't do uh, in the media space. And she recently had an episode on the Twitter files where she pointed out that the, the main takeaway from those hearings, if you look at the kinds of things that the Democrats were saying, not a single one of them seemed to understand that just because Twitter is a private company that technically has the right to censor as it 
as it will, that these individuals who seem to think that they, these, these uh, government agencies that seem to feel like they have uh, the power, the ability, the right to, to influence Twitter's um, censorship regime is a real problem, and that we should be talking about what what restrictions should be put on those government agencies, not necessarily vilifying Twitter or any company that's right. being no, questioned I agree in with these that kinds completely. of ways. And that the yeah. what was so dispiriting about watching those um, the, the hearings is that none of the Democrats seem to understand that at all. And I think that's part and parcel of this deeper cultural question of why is it that there is such this um, commitment to one always being right, that the other side can never have a point, that mm. it can never be that you just lost an election because you didn't connect to the people. This persistent refusal to engage with what might have caused Trump to win other than mm. Russia in 2016, it, it's, it's, a, it's a deeper illness that until Democrats and liberals reckon with, they're going to continue to make these kind of poor judgment decisions over and over again. Absolutely. And to, like, to be fair, I'm always calling on Republicans to grapple with why Trump lost in 2020. Sure. Like, you know, are, are you are you growing the coalition by engaging in some of the crazy things Trump says that clearly most of the electorate has no appetite for? So I'm, I'm constantly calling on Republicans to have this introspection. Could Democrats have this introspection as well? It would be they marvelous if they could. They got to. All right. Well, that does it for this segment. We'll have more rising right after this. We've got some breaking news. Donald Trump obviously going to surrender supposedly later today at a Manhattan uh, courthouse. But there are protests gathered there. There are some members of Congress there as well. Marjorie Taylor Greene was giving a speech. I've seen that Jamal Bowman is there. And we actually have a reporter on the ground for the Hill. Zach Schoenfeld is there. And Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what are you seeing? Good afternoon. It has been a chaotic scene here outside the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse as large crowds of protesters and a swarm of media and law enforcement await the arrival of former President Trump. Uh, we are expecting him to uh, arrive now only in a matter of minutes, where he will surrender to Manhattan's district attorney's office, uh, be brought inside 100 Center Street, and eventually appear on the 15th floor at 2.15 p.m., uh, where he will appear before a judge and formally uh, be charged uh, with the indictment from the grand jury last week. Now, the scene here outside this morning has remained peaceful, uh, but it has been chaotic at times. As you were mentioning, we've seen a few lawmakers uh, come over here outside the courthouse, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jamal Bowman, even Representative George Santos made a brief appearance. So a chaotic scene here as we await former President Trump's arrival. Is it, uh, is it a lot of, so describe the ratio, uh, is it mostly protesters who are pro-Trump? Uh, you know, at one point it sounded like maybe they were actually outnumbered by the number of media people there are. I gather that's not quite true now. You know, what's the ratio of like pro-Trump people to anti-Trump people to media? Sure. So this morning, uh, the media were really outnumbering the protesters, but the crowd has been growing over time. Protesters, uh, we saw uh, the first some of the first protesters really arriving around 9 a.m. Uh, or so today. It culminated in a rally at 1030. That's when Marjorie Taylor Greene showed up. So at this point, uh, it does seem relatively even between pro-Trump uh, and anti-Trump demonstrators. They've actually, the park behind me, they've split into two sections. Uh, you, it's a little hard to see behind me, but there is a metal barricade 
going down the middle. So on one side are anti-Trump protesters and on the other side uh, are pro-Trump protesters. Now, some have gone between throughout the day, but for the most part, uh, they are separated uh, by those barriers. So things, generally speaking, seem, seem relative, uh, but it has been uh, constantly uh, changing equations throughout the day as, as protesters and lawmakers uh, come in and out. But we are getting pretty close here uh, to the big moment of the former president's arrival. Zach, how on earth are people being separated by those barricades? Are, are police involved in assessing what team somebody is rooting for and moving them to one side or the other? And what, what general role are the cops playing here? The Post reported clashes between protesters and, and cops. Is that overstating things? I personally haven't seen any major clashes between uh, protesters and police. Now, there have been some scuffles here and there. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, some anti-Trump protesters put out a huge banner along the ground uh, that had some anti-Trump messaging. Uh, and a pro-Trump protester uh, wearing a MAGA hat uh, actually just dove on, to, on top of that banner. So there have been a few things here and there. But generally speaking, it has been peaceful. Now, that's not to say it's been chaotic. Uh, police all morning now into the afternoon uh, have been moving people around, have been uh, being giving very loud commands and telling people uh, to, to move around as they as the security posture continues uh, to, to rapidly change. So generally speaking, I would say it's peaceful, uh, but there have been some smaller isolated incidents here and there. My understanding is people had trouble hearing Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech because there were a lot of whistles. And then it turned out actually that the whistle distributor is a pro-Trump person who didn't know Marjorie Taylor Greene was trying to speak. Is that accurate? Were you aware of that situation going on? I, I was in the middle of all the whistles. I was like, I was in the big mob earlier uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I did not hear anything she said because it was being drowned out by at least a dozen, if not more, uh, whistles around me. I, I didn't see who exactly was giving them out, uh, but certainly her appearance was drowned out. When she came here to the park across the street from the courthouse, she was instantly swarmed by just dozens, if not hundreds of protesters and media uh, who tried to get around her. Now, at one point, Congressman Jamal Bowman, who was here, saw that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, had showed up, uh, and he actually tried to get into the middle uh, of that large crowd around her. Uh, and uh, he told me afterwards uh, that he did not really get to engage with her. I'm not sure if they had any interaction at all, uh, but he said that she wasn't really interested uh, in speaking with him. So her appearance definitely was drowned out by those witnesses. Yeah, it's, it seems that he was uh, telling telling people on the scene that he thought that Marjorie Taylor Greene should go back to her own district. On the flip side of things, um, Jamal Bowman has been uh, making a lot of these kind of con confrontations, one-on-ones with Republican lawmakers, recently having a bit of a showdown in Congress uh, over um, the recent gun tragedy uh, in Nashville. That's I, not his district either, is I, it? <laughs> case in point, although it, it happened in D.C. I mean, fine. Although but, it, yeah. is a, it is a national issue one could argue. I do think there is potentially a pattern emerging here of him trying to um, make some political moments happen, shall we say, through these these head-to-heads. What else can you tell us about the, the mood of the crowd? What kinds of things are they saying uh, on both sides of this? Are people really speaking to the underlying charges very much? Do they feel like it's a political witch hunt? What what do the, do the counter-protesters and the protesters, respectively, uh, say say on the ground today? Yeah, so those supporting Trump have told me on and on today uh, about how they felt this was a political persecution and all of that. Now, not too many people are getting into the specifics of the allegations that we believe this indictment uh, surrounds, that being the 2016 hush payment uh, that was made to adult film star Stormy Daniels 
Uh, but a lot of pro-Trump demonstrators out here today say they see this as uh, political persecution. Uh, they see they have said uh, all sorts of things about District Attorney Alvin Bragg to me in interviews. Uh, throughout the day. But one interesting thing is a few of the protesters specifically tried to make clear to me that they see themselves as different uh, than those who, who came to hear Trump speak back on January 6th. Uh, I've spoken to a few protesters who have uh, made clear to me that they are, they told me they weren't insurrectionists, they, they would not go to January 6th, but they are here because they feel uh, that he is being politically persecuted uh, in order to stop his 2024 campaign. Uh, now, on the other side, it's just about uh, the exact opposite. I think there's a lot of celebration here uh, among some of these anti-Trump demonstrators uh, who seem to have been uh, waiting for this for a long time. And they just seem to be a celebratory mood. So it really is interesting as you go from one side to the other, as you go from celebration just to anger. It's very interesting that there's a self-awareness, perhaps, on the pro-Trump people that if they let things, you know, get too out of hand, if, you know, that they, they might not want to have a January 6th repeat for their own sakes because, I mean, obviously, <laughs> Trump didn't do, a, didn't pardon those people en masse or anything like that. They were, they are being prosecuted. Um, is, is there, is there any resentment about that among, you know, these protesters? You know, what is their, their feelings or relationship to, to that kind of, the, you know, the riot that broke out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, the few people who have, uh, spoken to me about it. Uh, you know, like I said, they, they have been, been clear to me that they want to make themselves stand out from, from those. But also at the same time, some of these protesters who I've talked to, I was asking them if this case proceeds down to trial, uh, if this is the only time that we're going to see them protesting or if they uh, intend to come back here to 100 Center Street in Lower Manhattan. And a lot of the people I've been talking to tell me that this is just the beginning. They're intending to come back as many times as they take. Now, they keep stressing to me that they want to make sure that this is peaceful. Uh, the rally that Marjorie Taylor Greene came to earlier today that was organized uh, by the New York Young Republican Club, uh, in the announcement for that rally, uh, they really emphasized that it was peaceful. So like I said, it is a chaotic scene here, uh, but it does seem to be peaceful uh, and a very different scene um, from what we've seen uh, among some of these, these protests and riots uh, in your past. Oh, it's so good to talk to you, Zach. I'm really interested to see how this continues to uh, evolve over the day after Trump arrives. How long is he expected to be in the building uh, for the uh, arraignment? Not very long. Uh, it could be a few hours, potentially. I'm actually getting ready here right now to go inside the courthouse uh, as he prepares uh, to arrive. Now, we do expect him to go through a few steps. He'll get his fingerprints taken. Uh, he'll be processed. Uh, and then eventually walk down the 15th floor into that courtroom. So in terms of the exact timing, uh, it, that's a little unclear, but we're probably looking at, you know, one, two, three hours, not too much more than that. Uh, and we do expect him, once he leaves the courthouse, to pretty much immediately return back home before then. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll look forward to further reporting from you on that. Thank you, Zach, so much for joining us. And get into that courtroom. Good to be with you. Well, the mainstream media are facing some mockery online for their 24-7 coverage of former President Trump's indictment. Networks followed Trump's every move yesterday, including his flight to Manhattan from Mar-a-Lago. According to Mediaite, static shots of Trump's plane are the new empty podium coverage. <laughs> now, according to a Yahoo News report, Trump will be arraigned this afternoon on 34 counts of falsifying records. The president will not be handcuffed or have a mug shot taken. DA Alvin Bragg apparently nixed the fanfare after after consulting with Secret Service and law enforcement agencies. Mm. 
I mean, I, I saw some people referring to all of the static shots of the vehicles and whatnot as a kind of O.J. Simpson Bronco <laughs> coverage. It was evincing that sort of feel of, um, you know, impending doom or scandal or spectacle or something like that. Uh, you know, liberal media got in a lot of trouble for doing this in 2016. Some people argued that they created the Trump phenomenon by focusing on him in this right. way and giving him, you know, the, the ultimate platform, so much uh, earned media. Do you think this is a mistake? Well, a, a mistake on what terms? I mean, they're... A strategic mistake. Their viewers... Well, their, their strategy is right to, to maximize viewers from their audience, and I think their hollowed-out audiences really do care a lot about Trump. I have to imagine they get the feedback that they care a lot about Trump because I don't think they would continue doing this if, if their viewers were just revolting and, and the numbers were way down and they didn't care about the subject at all. I think what—now, obviously, they, they don't have the kind of numbers they would like to have. The audience they do have, I, I suppose, really does care about Trump, and that's why they do wall-to-wall -wall coverage of everything having to do with Trump. Mar-a-Lago raid, two impeachment trials, January 6th is every day, and on and on and on. Well, look, also, isn't this news? You can say January oh, 6th We're covering it. It's years news. ago, and yeah. they need to get a new uh, hobby horse. But this is pending. I mean, it's news. We're covering know? it. You know, the, the, president of, the former president of the United States um, being arraigned today maybe does justify some close coverage, even if it is sensationalized mm -hmm. and even if it is a little thin, if we're just looking at uh, planes in the tarmac instead of any of the actual action. Interesting. I, I, the conservative coverage has, I think, oscillated between this is the greatest crime in the history of humanity. To indict him is the greatest, right. not what he did. <laughs> the <laughs> of the handling of him. Of course not. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's akin to, you know, what they did to Jesus Christ. Um, right. That's that, and then nothing, and then not talking about it. That's, you have to talk about it at that tone. If you're going to talk about it, if you're not going to talk about it, then you're just not going to say anything. Which is interesting. Because, because they're not covering it wall to wall for Certain. I, I have turned on the TV to conservative news channels and found other things being covered. Right. Um, you can't turn on the other channels, the mainstream well, channels, that, to find anything a, being covered. That's an interesting reality, given that, according to a CNN poll released yesterday, 60% of Americans approve of the indictment. Now, that follows along mm -hmm. political lines. 94% um, of Democrats approve, 79% of Republicans disapprove, 62% of independents approve of the decision to indict Trump. Yeah, look, I think that's a, a reminder and something conservatives have to take to heart. Trump is so popular, or Trumpism is so wildly, universally popular among Republicans and among hardcore Republicans. It's it's the most popular president vision thing that has ever <laughs> existed. That can blind you a little bit to the reality that this is a minority coalition, that mm -hmm. most people do not, because all, all Democrats don't like Trump, and then there's a certain amount of middle people who are gettable, maybe, for the right Republican. Blue states vote for moderate Republican governors all the time, but don't like Trump. Those people have made up their mind right. they're done with Trump. Maybe they were interested in something because he had working class pretensions or talked a good game on that front at some point, but they're, like, they're done. They're over it. They're done with Trump. Right. And that is not maybe a reality that is evident if you're really in the conservative media bubble that, that you're you know, you're, you're below the 50% number. Have we all forgotten about the Obama to Trump voter, the yeah. preoccupation of yeah. uh, elite media for like the, at least two or three years after Donald Trump? And there are, definitely elected? were Obama to Trump voters, but there are also, there were Trump to Clinton voters, or uh, uh, Romney to Clinton voters. Sure. Uh, there, and there are Trump to Biden voters. There are people who gave Trump a shot sure. and are not going to do it again because, and again, I, I'm not sure it's, 
necessarily because of his policies or the kind of uh, country he presided over, but the really kind of embarrassing and self-sabotaging way he went out at the end really did himself no favors, and he's dealing with that. Do, do you think there's something to the um, Ron DeSantis approach of addressing what's going on with Donald Trump and the indictment by saying uh, yeah. Bragg is a bad guy, the attorney general is on doing a political witch hunt, but also, hey, I don't know so much about uh, payments to porn stars, payments to porn stars, and leading into the salacious act, a, a, aspect of it. Do you think that there's, there's some insight there that much of the public, many Republicans included, despite liking many things about Trump, just don't have the appetite for going through yet another one of these media cycles with him when it's about something as salacious as payments to porn stars? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, now, I know, again, the hardest, hardcore Trump supporters did not like how DeSantis handled this, mm -hmm. which is why, again, this is going to be a situation where the primary is going to be a bloody battle if those two go toe-to-toe, -to -toe because there are a lot of people who are, are still loyal, a lot of people still loyal to Trump, will be loyal to him in the Republican coalition until the end of time, and then there are people who like Trump, are grateful to Trump, but want to move on, want to give somebody else yeah. a shot, thinks a Ron DeSantis or et cetera type person, is going to be more electable, and that's going to be, that's going to be the battle, and it's going to be very interesting to yeah. see. Yeah. Well, another, another um, aspect of this has been the, the claim that it's politically motivated. And people have been mm -hmm. talking about, well, is it justifiable versus is it politically motivated? Do I want the indictment to happen versus is it politically motivated, as though those are mm -hmm. mutually exclusive? When I think there's a significant number of people that will acknowledge that there is obviously a political component Clearly to this. Clearly politically but also motivated. Think it's, <laughs> <laughs> also think it's, it's worthwhile. Well, so I did my radar yesterday on this whole, the whole Soros back. Mm -hmm. Uh, thing which I, I saw so many people. Your favorite, uh, your favorite fact checker, Glenn Kessler. Glenn I Kessler. held him accountable yesterday because he had a really lousy fact check saying that this is kind of some smear to say that Alvin Bragg is Soros funded or Soros backed because very technically, okay, Soros gave to a group that then gave to Alvin Bragg because they share this is criminal justice policies. So. I don't remember this distinction being drawn when, like, <laughs> me and everyone I know has been accused of being coke back. Yeah, you're, um, you're, you're coke brothers. I, I've, never, I've never, like, <laughs> gone whitewater rafting with Charles Coke. We, we, you know, we've never shared a bottle of champagne on a romantic yeah. evening or something. Yeah. But I, I, still, I have been called coke-supported. So this, this uh, Mehdi Hassan was going on about this on MSNBC, and talking about how it's anti-Semitic. Yeah, I uh, all Glenn, that. You can, how dare you criticize George Soros? It's just an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Like, yes, do some people criticize George Soros for anti-Semitic reason or share uh, share anti-Semitic memes about him? Absolutely. Is the the substantially the commentary against him is because he spends millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to help elect Democrats, and that's yeah. something Republicans have every right to call out. Yeah, it, it's difficult. I saw Glenn Greenwald pushing back against the idea that any Soros criticism or even a discussion of Soros having funded anything is anti-Semitism, and I think that's a very worthwhile discussion to have because it, it is a conversation stymieing thing to not be able to talk about the fact of someone who is Jewish funding something. We have this conversation all the time. We're talking about APAC groups um, undermining the campaigns of progressive candidates. NRA, and, the NRA. Yeah, there, there has to be some certainty on this. Yeah. But it's, it's worth noting that on the kind of political agenda piece of this, that same, um, this is a, a Quinnipiac University poll, found that 62% um, uh, of Americans, 93% of Republicans, and 70% of independents so most Americans thought the indictment was mainly motivated by politics, at the same time that most mm -hmm. Americans also think it's a good idea.
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as you said, those are not mutually exclusive things. It's clearly politically motivated. And, you know, we have to w wait to see what the evidence is. There's a lot of speculating. Let's see what what they're actually going to bring out, I guess, yeah. while still recognizing that this is kind of small ball stuff, even if it's exactly what they say it is, that, uh, you know, a payment, um, a, a, a payment for a salacious thing that really ought not to be criminal anyway and has which, involved other political figures. Yes, which Hillary but, Clinton has had to yes. pay, pay out. The DNC has had to pay. Related. Uh, John Edwards was in a very similar situation yeah. paying hush money to a, a woman he was seeing while his wife was dying of cancer. Yeah. He, let, let those in glass houses not yeah. cast the first stone or whatever. Fine. If you don't <laughs> like that kind of behavior, then you don't vote for that guy. But right. like, again, the Democratic, for that kind of thing, for, you know, character... Uh, Personal moral failings—that that's not a crime. That's a, right. don't vote for that person if you don't and like those maybe, values. And maybe it is a crime, but is this the crime that yeah. we want to use to set this kind of a precedent, especially when there are these pending charges for much more serious and much more direct forms of election engineering that are stand to come out of Georgia very soon? Mm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. House Republicans are demanding answers after accusing the National Institutes of Health of funding monkeypox studies allegedly capable of creating a supercharged monkeypox virus. That sounds like a terrible idea. House Energy and Commerce Committee Chair Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers wrote in a letter to the NIH and demanded the agency provide documents relating to studies that, according to Fox News, reportedly involved, quote, swapping monkeypox monkey genes with a deadlier version of the virus. Please stop. Don't do that. According to the GOP's letter, the studies are expected to yield a monkeypox strain that is 1,000 times more lethal in mice than the monkeypox virus currently circulating in humans. As friend of the show and journalist Emily Kopp notes, if pandemic potential gain-of-function research is as well-regulated and transparent as proponents say, it's hard to understand why NIH would keep stonewalling the committee that oversees NIH on key questions about it. So a monkeypox virus that is a thousand times deadlier than the one that was circulating uh, prevalently last year. Sounds like a good, good idea to do this research to you, Brianna? Uh, no, I, I mean, look. I'm going to say no. No without any hesitation. I would shut down this research. Shut it down. Well, th this is, my problem with this discourse is that so little of it has been about the fact that there were um, breaches in uh, safety protocol that we know about, mm -hmm. that there were people who observed that the level of protection, they have various, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know like a hierarchy, various levels of um, uh, safety mechanisms, depending on how dangerous the viruses, the material they're working on is, and that they were using inadequate safety protocols at, at these um, the Gana function labs. We, we know all of that, right? So my only hesitation is, is there a world where they had, if they had actually been using the requisite safety protocols, this wouldn't have been an issue. If there is, in fact, scientific, you know, useful scientific um, research to be done here, gains to be had here in terms of being able to anticipate deadly strains and making vaccines, and you're able to do so safely, then I don't have a problem with it. And given that part of why this happened was because we know the labs didn't have pro proper safety protocols, well, that doesn't seem to say to me that it's inevitable necessarily. Um, you know, should these labs be in Antarctica or someplace far away where if moon. leakage... No, know. like, what if it's never going to be totally perfectly safe enough? I mean, 
And and what? You know, yes, obviously, if the the trade off is worth it, the trade off's worth it. I think that is very much an open question. I uh, no one has really put question. to me why, because especially because a lot of the research on vaccines doesn't ha doesn't seem to have anything to do with gain-of-function research itself. Are these scientists just doing experiments because that's what scientists do, and you get to publish papers, and it's really exciting to make new things and create new things without thinking through the consequences? Like, what is the benefit? And uh, so Republicans asked, or this committee asked, maybe it was uh, the committee asked, um, last year whether this project underwent the additional Health uh, Department of Health and Human Services review that is required for high-risk mm -hmm. uh, proposals. They asked that, and remember there was a there was an oversight report suggesting that HHS was not reviewing. There should there should have been a higher level of review for, and that wasn't happening. So they asked, did this one get that higher level of review? NIH has made no response. They have not answered that question. That is terrifying. This yeah, is that, very scary. That is. Very scary. And all I'm saying is that to the extent yeah. that it is an open question, I would like for some of those questions to be resolved. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just not going to knee-jerk say shut down all gain-of-function research, but I do think that there are really serious questions sure. about the utility of it and the cost-benefit obviously is off given what happened I mean, potentially with COVID. It, epidemiologists, you know, people of Fauci's ilk want to come to Congress and explain why it's important to do this research. Go ahead and do that. But this is not a, this is a political question. This is a question lawmakers should decide. This is not something that's going to be left to our government health uh, bureaucracy to just say, yeah, we felt like this was important. I'm not satisfied yeah. with that. This is, you can claim it's important and try to explain why, and you got to put it in layman's terms, sorry. And if we're not persuaded by that, we're going to shut it down. I would, I would pause all this research right now until that calculation can be done, because this just, it just seems unnecessarily and extremely risky. And I, I'm sorry, I don't have enough faith in these, in the health, in the NIH and HHS to be uh, competently adjudicating whether these things are really necessary when Fauci can't even, you know, remember when he's asked about it, which exactly which, you know, which projects crossed his desk that he signed off on exceptions for. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He doesn't know. Um, that is not at all satisfactory. I don't think the public should be at all satisfied by that. I think that's fair. I think the reality is after we come through something like COVID, gain-of-function research yeah. is rightly going to be under Sorry, I'm going to be jumpy about this. Um, you know, govern like... I think a legitimate role of government, I don't think there are all that many, but uh, prohibiting people from, you know, like assembling uh, earth extinction uh, potential events seems like something that is within government's purview to prevent well, that. And not only are they not doing that, they're the ones making the extinction event. Well, th that's what I was going to ask you about. That's an interesting kind of a yeah. lib libertarian question here. Yeah. In this case, it's the issue is government funding of this kind of a research. Yeah. But how would you feel about it if private entities were doing this kind of research? Would you want to, them to be prohibited? Yes. You don't think that this is one of those free markety, markety types I mean, of things? I think. <laughs> I think the government. I'm not an. I'm not a pure anarchist. I think the government gets to have like a police force and some courts, and yeah, they can they can stop you from like assembling and detonating like a nuclear weapon in your backyard and and inventing and assembling a virus that is going to kill all of humanity. Sorry if that makes me like a squish <laughs> on the should government exist question. I think that's okay. But no FDA. <laughs> what? But no FDA. Uh, if, if the an FDA that is narrowly like, okay. like preventing people <laughs> from creating pathogens All to right. kill everyone would be fine. Um, it, no, an FDA that just prevents you from buying toothpaste from Europe. No, thank you. All right, Robbie. Toothpaste from Europe, okay. Uh, <laughs> mass extinction pathogens, not okay. How about that?
I know I'm a, I have wild views. Wild I, I need views. to know a little bit more about the E. coli on my lettuce, uh, especially after having gone through about a food poisoning <laughs> over the weekend. Well, but we'll agree to disagree on this one for now. Uh, former Rising co-host Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky, remember them, interviewed scientists on both sides of the gain-of-function debate several months ago. Let's watch some of that. You find it, you're like, uh-oh, this bat cave or you know, these, this pig farm has this virus that we have now isolated and shared the recipe with 30,000 people, which is scary enough. But okay, we know that this, it exists here. We, what, then slaughter everything at the farm or, or like annihilate the cave? Or is that, is that the thinking? Well, there's a lot of different proposals on the table, but I'd rather take a step back since you mentioned cost-benefit analysis. Sure. Let's just assume it works perfectly. So I even worry about vaccines. Okay. Obviously, it's hard to test a vaccine for a virus that you think might cause a pandemic is of unknown lethality and has never infected a human before. You'd have to deliberately infect people with viruses like that in order to test a vaccine candidate. So we're not gonna do that. But let's just assume if we identify a pandemic capable virus from nature, that we can perfectly prevent it from spilling over. And let's say if it had spilled over, these viruses would cause 10 million deaths, judging at COVID. But most viruses in nature will never spill over. That is, estimates of how many viruses out there can infect people range from 10,000 to 500,000. And we know that there's only four or so pandemics per century, just looking at history. So if there's 400 viruses out there that could cause a new pandemic of that magnitude, there's only a one in a hundred chance that the one that we identify would have spilled over anyway. That would still means it would save 100,000 lives, which is a lot. But on the flip side, say there's just a 1% chance every year that one of those people would deliberately release it and cause 10 million deaths. Over the course of a century, that means it's likely to happen. And so the cost then would be 10 million lives. 100,000 lives saved versus 10 million lives lost. And that's assuming no accident risk and that's assuming that knowing what it is would let us perfectly prevent it from causing any harm through the natural route. The I numbers get, just don't add up. Right. I want to get your response to that, Gigi, because that's persuasive to me. But I'm also wondering then on the other side, if, if what are we missing if we you know, have all of these safeguards in place and, and basically bans against gain-of-function research? That might be a good way to frame the question. You know, what, what, do, what would we lose in that case? Yeah, well, so I just wanted to address the previous you know, discussion about culling. I mean, those are real world con uh, consequences. If there's a virus that's particularly dangerous, this is the kind of uh, struggle that we have with H5N1, with an influenza virus. So if it's detected in a bird population on a farm, I mean, yes, culling is ex exactly what happens. And these are, these are you know, real consequences for, for farmers and people who have livestock and these decisions cannot be made lightly and they're done in the public health interest. Um, so it's, it's important stuff. Um, as far as, you know, the, um, I, th I think we need to, we still need a little bit humil of humility as far as what we do know. Um, we have seen great demonstrations of spillovers from the natural world, but that is something that we need to study better and make the case that we need to create more buffers between us and the natural world. Like, you know, there needs to be maybe uh, parks that are put in between um, where where land is developed and uh, where we have, you know, bat populations and things like that. We need to study this 
much more. Um, as far as what we lose, we lose the ability to learn more about the viruses, what's dangerous and what damage they're causing. I teach a class on 1918 flu. When that whipped through the world, so, I mean, yeah, go ahead. But if you make the virus more deadly, it kills a bunch of people, right? You learn that you kill more people. It, it also presumes there aren't ways to study a virus and anticipate how to make vaccines mm -hmm. and anticipate how to um, protect against the spread of a virus outside of creating a super virus. Yeah. I struggle with and that. And this vaccine technology did not—the the one we're using to fight COVID— did not come from gain-of-function research. That's, that's exactly where I was going to go next, which is it that I, I know how you feel about masks, but in terms of raw prevention of the spread of the virus, nothing has come close uh, other than wearing a high-quality fitted mask. And there's a world where we spent—I know that some people are very skeptical about masks because there are studies that show that they don't work in certain contexts. Some of the masks don't work. It's low-quality masks that aren't fitted are less effective than high-quality masks that are fitted. And there's a world where we put all this money and investment into distributing high-quality masks, having people come in instead of— Go up, going in to get your vaccine or in addition to going in and getting a vaccine or a booster, you have your mask actually fitted to you. And there could be a different kind of resource allocation if you actually cared about preventing a spread or like the 1819 flu or those kinds of things. But choices were made to rely on technology that didn't actually do what it ultimately said it was going to do and research, which potentially could cause a lot more harm than good. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know about that because, I, I mean, I think what the research shows is that I'm not exactly disagreeing with you, but that people just did not, would not over time wear them with the. If the 1819 flu behavior, comes, Robbie, I promise you, you'll be wearing, <laughs> you'll be wearing I, a mask. Never, um, you'd have to wrestle it onto me on this chair. Okay, but, uh, well, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a corpse in the chair, so it'll be a pretty easy okay, thing to wrestle. With. The 1819 flu. This, uh, the, the, the issue here is that there are diseases that are more deadly than COVID, more, mm -hmm. you know, that have a higher um, kill rate than COVID, mortality rate than COVID, um, that people are afraid of. That's why they say they're doing this kind of research. They're looking for something that's going to be even worse, uh, you know, black plague mm -hmm. style things that could really wipe out populations, even more so than COVID. So I think that if that's the case, that's fine. But you have to start thinking about whether or not, you know, what, what made those diseases so um, deadly back then? It was our lack of understanding about how, how disease spread, not understanding the role of cleanliness and how, you know, not having drugs like penicillin and not, well, not having... Well, not having access to antibiotics. Not obviously. having antibiotics, but also well, and not that's having... Something, and that's something we need to be prepared. Honestly, we need... Look, we certainly need to do more medical research and more medical preparedness for future outbreaks of things. I mean, we are existing antibiotic, you know, we hear about antibiotic resistant uh, organisms or bacteria. Uh, we don't invent, we're not inventing a lot of new antibiotics, and the ones we have are, are getting um, less protective or less useful yeah. in some cases. So we need to do a lot more work on that front. I just don't know that any of that work actually entails Right. Well, also, we're mixing viruses. up some things here. Yeah. A virus and uh, antibiotics are for bacteria and that virus isn't all these That's kinds. generally true, although they do use, I mean, sometimes they use antibiotics for certain viruses as well. I, we, I, I thought that until the pandemic and then I learned that they well, do deploy the, antibiotics. The, the point is that if, if you're there are ways to stop the transmission of viruses. There are ways to deal with pandemics that don't have to do with gain-of-function research. And to your point, what we've been doing all of this time since COVID has nothing to do with gain-of-function research. Um, so the, the second woman in that interview does have, I think, a lot more mm -hmm. 
onus on her to justify what is actually being lost if the gain of research, that function research is stopped. I still do think that I would like a little bit more of a robust conversation about whether or not it is possible to do gain of function research safely and not to presume that because it wasn't done safely this time, it can never be done. We have- I'm gonna go back to your initial suggestion. Antarctica, put it the in International Antarctica. Space Station, <laughs> something like that. that. That's where we keep the, the Black Death or whatever. That's where we keep the last- it's in the space the polio station? and all of that. <laughs> no, in these vaults in the, in yeah. the Arctic or the Antarctic, I don't remember which, mm. where we, we consider them to be relatively safe, at least until you know the ice caps With thaw. the polar bears or with the Penguins. <laughs> I have to look that up. Penguins and let are you know. down in Antarctica. The polar bears are up in the Arctic. Thanks. They never meet in the wild. Thanks. Very sad. <laughs> More rising after this. An EPA official admitted on March 28th that the devices used to test air quality in East Palestine, Ohio, are not capable of detecting all chemicals of concern that were released from the controlled burn at the train derailment in early February. This is according to new reporting from independent journalist Louis DeAngelis. The EPA also acknowledged that the threat of lawsuits against the agency has influenced their decision-making in relation to East Palestine. That's according to the report. Status Quo News has continued to cover the situation on the ground in East Palestine. Here's just one recent interview with a resident. Yeah, it's super like wishy-washy about who gets it and who doesn't. And I mean, they've told me I was in it and then I was out and then I was in and out. And then like, it's not even going by the mile, like the evacuation zone anymore. It's right. city limits. Like, and it depends on who you are. There's people in the same situation as me who has had their air tested okay by their, their group, which is still obviously not okay. We're still getting sick. It still smells. Some people have been co like compensated for their hotel stays since then, and I ha had a two-week period where I wasn't. Right. And now I am because of this whole temporary relocation, but it, it, it's a joke. And $1,000 for a family, I mean, it, it costs $1,500 for a one week at an Airbnb, which is right. lower rates than a hotel sometimes. Yeah, no, it, it's insane. I'm glad you brought up the point that, like, it's not like you're going <laughs> and enjoying your time staying at this hotel. No. Like, it's you're, you've got all of your belongings are in town here, right, in your house for the most part. You take what you can with you to go deal with this sort of stuff. And then, you know, you're running back and forth. You don't have all your things with you. To your point, you've got your pets, your kids, all in one room. You're not, you don't have a stove to cook on. Yeah, you're eating not like reimbursing us for any of that stuff. Like, so we got a thousand dollars for my son and I, which barely it actually doesn't even cover a week's worth of just lodging alone. And right. and then they went, they said they're going to cover food and gas, um, but everything else is just we're left to replace on our own. Here to tell us more about the situation is investigative reporter Louis DeAngelis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. So, Lewis, tell us more about this EPA admission. There are chemicals of concern that were released from this controlled burn that were never tested for. And in spite of that, people were told that their air quality had tested as safe. Yeah, so essentially we learned quite a bit at a uh, town hall event put on last week by an organization called River Valley Organizing. Uh, at this town hall, there were kind of three major bombshells. And the first is what you brought up right here, so we can start right there. Uh, in regards to residential air testing. So from the beginning, residential air testing has been offered to folks who were coming back to their homes after the quote unquote controlled burn, vent and burn. You've probably heard it referred to in many different ways at this point. Um, and these residential tests essentially included uh, a representative from the EPA as well as a representative from a contractor hired by the railroad uh, to come into your home and do an inspection with a handheld air testing device. Uh, this device is called a photoionization detector. For short, it's a PID. Um, and residents have been skeptical of these tests from the beginning. 
um, mainly because when they walk into their homes, some of these homes, even as recently as a week and a half ago, uh, two weeks ago, when I was in East Palestine last, uh, still have a chemical smell in them. Residents are still, you know, after being exposed to the smell, dealing with some of the health symptoms that we've talked about before as a result. Um, and for the first time now, we actually have the EPA admitting that one of the chemicals in question, uh, it's called butyl acrylate, um, is not going to be picked up at the EPA's action level or action phase uh, for for this chemical. So the action level is is 20 parts per billion uh, for uh, where action should be taken. You should remove yourself from the situation. Uh, you shouldn't spend an over amount of time in that that condition. The devices that are being used will only pick up butyl acrylate at 100 parts per billion. Mm. Uh, so obviously five times higher than the EPA's action action level, and that's according to uh, EPA official Mark Derno, who spoke at this town hall. So were they forced to concede this, essentially, after residents were still saying, you know, we feel sick in our homes or we're seeing other evidence of potential contamination? You know, what prompted them to actually make this disclosure? Yeah, I mean, it, it sure seems like what, what you're pointing out here. So we had a resident actually ask a very specific question on this point. Um, and the resident kind of asked the question and looked at the EPA member, Mark Derno, and kind of was like, and, and you could tell that Mark Derno knew that the question was coming and they had already talked about this privately. So just like the conversation with dioxins that has ha been had over this whole ordeal in East Palestine, where residents had to beg and plea uh, to get testing for dioxins and finally are starting to get tests for dioxins being done. Um, again, here it is resident pressure leading to uh, some of these things finally starting to be admitted, some of these things finally starting to be done. And, and what are the effects of butyl acrylate? Mm -hmm. So uh, butyl acrylate still will cause a lot of the similar symptoms that we've been hearing of, sore throats, uh, potential you know breathing complications, all of these things. It is in comparison to vinyl chloride, less harmful, but it's still something that you do not want to be exposed to uh, for a long period of time. What I will say, though, in additional digging that I have done on these air testing devices, these PIDs, I've spoke with several experts on and off the record. These are folks who are PhDs in uh, in chemistry, folks with toxicology degrees who use this stuff on the regular. Um, these PIDs will not pick up several other chemicals of concern. Uh, so when you burn vinyl chloride, like was done in this case here, it creates several chemical byproducts ranging from uh, formaldehyde is one of them. Phosgene is another one. Hydrogen chloride. Um, phosgene is something that with several experts that I have talked to would never be picked up by this PID device. Mm. Uh, formaldehyde will only be picked up with this PID device if it has a special attachment on it. But if you're using that special attachment, you can't be doing the tests for the other chemicals of concern. Uh, I've seen dozens of these residential home test results that have been provided to residents at this point. Um, and results for formaldehyde have never been on the form. It's only these very broad tests for VOCs or volatile organic compounds. So that tells me that formaldehyde has not been tested for in a residential home test and phosgene can't be with the devices that are being used. Are they going to do additional testing or offer additional testing for uh, these uh, contaminants that cannot have not been picked up using the testing they were doing so far? At this point, there's no word on additional residential home tests being done by the EPA, being done by contractors of the railroad. There are more independent testers in town at this point. 
Um, Dr. Andrew Welton from Purdue University has been doing residential home tests. Uh, he's done home tests recently with residents that I've been in touch with. Uh, those results have not been released yet, um, but as soon as we get them, um, I, I'll be very curious to see uh, what this independent testing is finding uh, in the residential home tests in a, you know, in comparison to what uh, was found by the EPA and the railroad contractors when they did their tests. Um, looking at it right now, I mean, this uh, Andrew Welton just released test results uh, in the creek water and the streams that are heavily polluted in town. And the results from the EPA and from, from the Ohio EPA and from Dr. Welton's uh, group who's been doing the research here are actually very different, which is concerning. So it just leads to more questions as we start to see some of these additional results come in, unfortunately. Now, I want to ask you a little bit of a political question. There was a lot of interest in East Palestine in the weeks, well, first, no interest at all, and then eventually a lot of interest as major figures like Donald Trump uh, visited. There was a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to send someone. Biden still hasn't visited, but Pete Buttigieg, transportation secretary, ultimately did. Do you feel like there are still people who are visiting the town, that there is still a level of engagement and coverage? Are you seeing that wane as the weeks go by? The coverage has, has absolutely waned, um, and that's not just coming from me, that's coming from, from the residents who are there. They are not seeing the type of coverage on this sort of thing. Again, this town hall that I got all this event, and there's there's another element of it I would like to talk about related to the vent and burn after I answer your question, um, but this town hall had maybe one or two local journalists at it that did not cover the information that I just gave you in regards to the air testing. Mm. Uh, we put out the piece on Substack, and literally nobody else has talked about a lot of this stuff in, in any real way. I mean, the, the EPA made several big admissions here, again, first on air testing and then on the vent and burn that, I, that I'd like to talk about after this. So it's uh, it's it blows my mind that they're not getting the coverage. Unfortunately, I mean, I haven't heard any real updates on any new railroad you know, regulation legislation coming in. So uh, residents definitely feel like they've been abandoned on this issue. They feel like they need to continue to try to raise their voices. And frankly, the amount of text messages I'm getting from residents right now is increasing because I think that those messages are not getting through to all of the other journalists who maybe covered this for a period of time, but have since moved on. There was also reporting in the last few days about CDC employees getting sick in East Palestine. Um, have you been following that at all? Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so I'm... Uh, I mean, you mentioned it right there, CDC employees who were in kind of studying the health effects, um, not even right at the site. Uh, they were actually studying the health effects um, by going, you know, door to door, essentially talking to residents. Uh, a number of members on their team got got sick and lo and behold, they leave town and they start to feel better. Mm. Uh, a lot of residents that I've been talking with are are, you know, they're not happy that these folks are getting sick but they're happy that their concerns are being seen now, not by just, you know, just by the residents speaking out, because unfortunately, again, these are things that are hard to prove with a video camera, with a photo. These mm -hmm. are things that can only be experienced by the folks, unfortunately, going through uh, exactly what is going on here. So, um, you know, residents are, they're not happy that these folks are getting sick, obviously, but if the CDC members are getting sick, why are these people being told that it is still okay to be in town? That, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and, and Lewis, what is it that we should know about the controlled burn? Absolutely. So on, on the controlled burn, uh, initially, um, obviously, the, the derailment happens on a Friday night. Um, the controlled burn, burn began on Monday. Uh, the initial plan was to burn one car, vent and burn one car of vinyl chloride. That was the, the message that had gotten out there. 
Um, the EPA said that they had provided guidance on how to do this, um, but that ultimately the vent and burn decision was not their decision. On Sunday evening, the, the plan was to still do this one car vent and burn. Um, on Monday, something changed overnight and the decision was bumped from one car of vinyl chloride to five cars of vinyl chloride. Um, on Sunday, according to Mark Durno, the EPA representative at this event, uh, on that Sunday, modeling had been provided by the EPA for what would happen with a one-car vent and burn. That means modeling for all of this contaminants going up into the air. Where are they going to spread out to? What should the evacuation zone look like? So on Sunday night, um, that is the plan. And then I want to read a direct quote here from Mark Durno. Quote, on Monday, we learned that they had made the decision to vent and burn five cars. We were not part of that decision. So EPA was not part of the decision to vent and burn five cars. They only had provided modeling for the vent and burn of one car of vinyl chloride. How the heck did they know what the evacuation zone should be? Mm. Where? How did they know where the contaminants were going to go? The answer is, is that they probably didn't know. And then the other big question here is, who is the they? On Monday, we learned that they had made the decision to vent and burn. I, we reached out to the EPA for clarification on this. We have not received it. Um, but in a lot of folks I'm talking with, including officials at the state level in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of speculation that the they here is Norfolk Southern making that decision to go from one car to five. I don't, I don't know that for certain at this point, but given, given the information that we have, um, this is a, a huge deal that has really been missed um, by a lot of, uh, it's been missed by, by frankly, everybody. I, I, residents in town cannot get over that, that mm. the decision was made to go from one car to five without the appropriate modeling being done. Louis, that's incredible reporting you're doing. You said you've been posting this on your Substack as well? Yep. So this has all been coming out on the Status Coup Substack. Folks can check it out there. Uh, Substack.statuscoup.com. Um, we've been putting out a lot of information there. There's more coming as well. Uh, both my colleague Jordan Sheridan and I have been speaking with residents basically every day. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff in the works, so uh, we definitely encourage folks to check that out as well as our YouTube channel, uh, just youtube.com slash status coup. Thank you, Lewis. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you both for having me. We'll have a rising right after this. From the Washington Post on the Nord Stream explosions details new theories surrounding the 50-foot yacht that was initially believed by some to have been involved in the attack. That yacht is called the Andromeda, and it's uh, possibly linked to a wealthy Ukrainian political figure. Buried several graphs deep in the story is over a totally different revelation that we here at Rising found to be pretty interesting. Uh, don't talk about Nord Stream, according <laughs> to the Post. Allies of the U.S. are avoiding conversation about the pipeline altogether. Quote, leaders see little benefit from digging too deeply and finding an uncomfortable answer, the diplomat said, echoing sentiments of several peers in other countries, so they would rather not have to deal with the possibility that Ukraine or allies were involved. <laughs> That's amazing. It's a really so great story. At European and NATO gatherings with policymakers, they're basically, it was described as this by a European diplomat, quote, it's like a corpse at a family gathering. Everybody can see there's a body lying there, but pretends that things are normal. It's better not to know. 
Is that how it goes? If there's a corpse at a family gathering, we all pretend not to know? I mean, what kind of gathering? If it's a funeral, I think we're all very much yeah. acknowledging the corpse. If it's yeah. a different kind of gathering, then I have some questions to ask about what this family is up to. But that, that aside... So U.S. and European officials said they still don't know for sure who is behind the underwater attack, but several said they share German skepticism that a crew of six people on one sailboat laid the hundreds of pounds of explosives that disabled Nord Stream. Later, they say that yeah, if, if you're doing it from the sailboat, that would have been very difficult, even for the most experienced divers. Um, and then there's um, uh, then there's some Polish. The, uh, the Polish people are speculating that well, maybe the sailboat was planted by Russia as a, as a diversion, right? A di so, so there was initially <laughs> when the, the they, they reported on this boat that they found with traces of explosives on it as this aha moment. Like we we, we found mm -hmm. who did it. It's not a national group. We don't know anything about anything except it definitely wasn't a country, right? We talked at the time about how that's a very convenient outcome if you don't want there to be any consequences for the likely parties, United States, Ukraine, right, mm -hmm. or any of our, our allies. Uh, people who were critical of that story at the time also pointed out that the boat was so small that it was unlikely that it was going to be able to hold the level of ex explosives that were needed for such a, a, an adventure or the number of people, divers, and equipment that would be necessary to go and do this deep-sea technical dive and plant the explosives. That's what I always say. If you're going to blow up a pipeline, <laughs> bring a big enough boat, <laughs> Brianna. Well, now this, this story now just seems like an acknowledgment of the technical impossibility of the initial theory. And now they're saying, well, there could have been more boats. Or maybe this boat was just a diversionary boat. And I got to say, when you read this article in its entirety, it's difficult to see how this is helping the case of anyone who wants to plausibly point to the actor here being anything right. other than... So I, I want right. to read another paragraph here. The German investigation has linked the yacht rental to a Polish company, which is in turn owned by a European company that's connected to a prominent Ukrainian... Fueling speculation from Berlin to Warsaw to Kiev that a deep-pocketed partisan may have financed the operation. And what deep-pocketed partisan might have an incentive to do something mm, like that? Could it be perhaps <laughs> the president of the Ukrainian nation, perhaps? <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I mean I, we don't know. We but, don't know. But it, it seems more and more things to be, seem to me to be pointing toward the Ukrainian government's responsibility. Or, or, right, or some force, but not one working without the Ukrainian government's knowledge, but with the knowledge, like with the knowledge of Zelensky. Yeah, well, what is it? What are the three? It's like motive, opportunity, and like a third thing that people look for when they're trying to see who the, the culprit is in a the, murder investigation. The candlestick and the study <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Professor Plum, you got them all. The, the fact that the motive is such a, a key yeah. signal here about who, who might have been responsible, it has been really downplayed in all of this. Mm -hmm. Russia had no motive. Eventually, like, they had to let go of the fact, the idea that Russia was involved. And even in this article, they always have to somewhat begrudgingly acknowledge that there's no evidence. They never say that, you know, Russia didn't do it. They say, well, there's just no evidence. There's no evidence that Russia was involved. Right. Okay, great. Good enough. There's no evidence that Russia was involved. There's also no motive for Russia to be involved. But it's interesting that in this article, they also downplay motive. They say the identity of the Polish company and the Ukrainian individual, as well as his potential motive, remains unclear. Well, yes, you coming up with an abstract motive for a person that you have no idea who they are is unclear and difficult to do. But you're also ignoring asking the, the fundamental question of who benefits from the Nord Stream pipeline being blown up. Mm -hmm. Who benefits from the Nord Stream pipeline being blown up? And there's one very clear answer to that, and it's the United States of America and Ukraine. That's yeah. it.
That's, that's it. So at a certain point, unless you expect people to, if you, if you have some other theory that explains why some random Ukrainian or Polish nationals, untethered from a relationship to a nation state, but want to take it upon themselves to do a very difficult technical dive in the middle of the ocean, avoiding all of the surveillance and other ships of all of these surrounding NATO countries, and then finish their task by just dumping a boat willy-nilly on the coastline without even wiping it down afterward. If this is a narrative that you think is satisfying to the public, go for it. But I think there's a reason why we don't talk about you, uh, we, we don't talk about Nord Stream to the tune of, uh, we don't talk about Bruno is, is the way that you're they're handling things. Well, just, the, the Russians put that sailboat there to confuse us. Like, but no one was confused but you. Yeah. <laughs> to it, make us think it was this, but, but, but it's funny. It, it, it's a wild it's story. And of course, we're laughing about it, not because it's not serious, but because it's right. so absurd. But no, people, because the, the, the things the U.S. claims are absurd. And they don't, they're not really interested in the truth. And that makes you wonder why they're not interested in the truth. Do they already know the truth? We always have to put this in context of the things Joe Biden and Victoria Nuland said about what would be the ultimate fate of Nord Stream if Russia did something we didn't like. Yes, there are ways. You know, the reporter, I think, very uh, astutely asked when Joe Biden made the comment about how Nord Stream 2 was never going to come, um, start running, you know, start, start transporting gas. She asked, well, how can, you, how can you determine that? You're not Germany. Like, you don't have any say over that. And he says, that, like, there are ways. You know, I, I, don't know, I don't know how else you can start to read that. I mean, people who push back against the Cy Hirsch reporting say they, they pretend that it's based entirely on the comments from Joe mm -hmm. Biden and people in the administration, which, of course, it is not. I encourage people who haven't read it yet to go ahead and read it and contrast the level of detail in that reporting to the conclusory... Guessing that's happening in these Wall Street Journal stories or the New York Times story, you know, and make your own decision about what seems more likely. Of course, we don't know what is true, but what seems more likely and what's more substantiated. But even though the Cy Hirsch's reporting is not based on those on the statements from the Biden administration. The statements from the Biden administration are incredibly damning. And the fact that there hasn't been more of an effort to respond to the implications of those statements really speaks to the level of impunity with which the United States feels like it can move in these spaces. Right. And the question of whether the U.S. carried out a covert operation that it did not even brief uh, the, the very the, the, the members of Congress who are supposed to be informed at least of sensitive military operations conducted against an ally ostensibly in, as part of a war effort involved in a country we're not even at war with, technically. Yeah. And Cy Hirsch's reporting, by the way, explains why, for technical reasons, you know, Biden making these weird admissions enabled them to not have to brief Congress mm -hmm. on, on some aspects of this in a way that ended up getting them, they were able to thread the needle of non-disclosure, basically, because of some oopsie-daisies by Joe Biden that ended up and inuring to their benefit. So again, go back to that initial reporting, see what you think, and um, let us know how you feel about it in the comments. We'll have a rising for you right after this. Some conservatives think they found AOC's burner account on Twitter. Did you see this, Brianna? This <laughs> I is did some see it. How could you miss <laughs> it? Yeah, so for those of you who are online, not online enough to know what a burner account is, yes. many folks who are high profile, some folks who are high profile choose to have a separate account that they're not identified yes. by so that they can go and say things that they maybe wouldn't say in their professional capacity. Spoiler. 
I don't think this is AOC's Twitter <laughs> account, and we're going to debunk it right here and right okay. now. Okay. Uh, so what's, what is the evidence? Okay, so, so right-wing people are all over this. Matt Walsh, Libs of TikTok, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, we put up the tweet that Marjorie Taylor Greene had about this saying, is this you, AOC? Um, the account in question... Zaza Demon? Is that what it is? Zaza, Zaza Smoker. Smoka. At Zaza, Zaza Smoker. So, yeah, so people are, so th th this start all started when uh, yeah, the a user, guy named. Yeah, the name is Zaza Demon. The, it's at Zaza Smoka. Right. So uh, a guy named Nico House, who was, I think, a, a, a significant fundraiser for Tulsi uh, Gabbard, was in a, a big booster of her campaign. Um, he responded to an AOC tweet mm -hmm. um, accusing her of voting to send money to Nazis in Ukraine. He's someone who was a critic of the uh, of the U.S. funding of the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And a the Zaza Smoka account replied to him in the first person. Because, and, and the reason this was is because those, that account had retweeted AOC. Well, so then sometimes when you respond, it... Yes, I mean, yes. I mean, you're, you're, I think you're jumping ahead a little bit because okay. let's just explain why he came to this okay. conclusion. Okay. So because this account applied to him in the first person, it, it's a little odd. I think even what you're explaining, it's a little odd for someone to, if someone accused you of donating money to Ukraine or voting to donate money to Ukraine, mm -hmm. and you are not in Congress, I'd be like, what? Yeah. What are you talking about? But this person seemed to respond in a way, according to Nico House and the people who think that this was a burner account, that suggested that it really was AOC. It was the kind of response that AOC would actually give um, because it's in first person and the like. Um, on top of that, the fact that apparently ZA is or Zaza is an abbreviation of the word of the name Alexander and or Alexandria, presumably, and that Smoka is a synonym for burner. They think this is an Alexandria you know, an AOC burner account. So that's the evidence. Other people have now pointed out yes. that... So this account was... So when the person you said said that, you know, you're funding Nazis in Ukraine, this person responded, what makes you think I did anything to support Nazis? You're delusional. Seek help. Because both this person and AOC were, AOC were tagged in the tweet. So uh, Nico House was directing this at AOC, but this person thought... Like, yes. why are you talking? So that's the confusion, yeah, the, I think. The mechanics of Twitter are that when you retweet somebody right. else and then someone replies to the original you thing, it both. looks like it's coming yeah. to you as well. So I think that's the obvious explanation. It's, I, don't, I don't think it's AOC. Uh, that makes sense for why, be, for why that would have happened that way. But a lot of conservatives are claiming, uh, a lot of right-wing people, ha-ha, we, we caught you. Um, and then, you know, you can see this account has responded to... Uh, right-wing people in the past and said, you know, obscenities and insults at them. Um, yeah, it's defended the TikTok, AOC. The C word. Um. Right. So, uh, Eels, Ian Miles Chong, um, you know, uh, as you said, Matt Walsh, uh, have all waited on this because Zaza Demon responded, uh, Zaza Smoker responded to Matt Walsh at one point, calling him a hateful little freak, saying he, that they couldn't wait till he pisses off a trans person that is actually as hinged, as unhinged as you claim to say they all are. Can't be a bigot if you're no longer breathing. So a kind of a death threat, yeah. which a lot of people picked up on, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying uh, Zaza Demon. Uh, you know, is this UASC? Zaza Demon is your burner account. That, that is a disturbing name. Excited to see an unhinged trans person murder a member of the conservative press, Matt Walsh. Yes, that is demonic. So the name fits.
Yeah, it, it's not her. <laughs> I want to say it's not her. And the, the person deleted their account uh, after this which, publicity. Which truthers, <laughs> people who think that this is AOC, take as evidence that Burner it was, truthers. in fact, Burner truthers, Burner truthers. That, that this is evidence that it was AOC, saying not that her. it's not that big a deal. If it's if it's not really you, then why wouldn't you just leave your account up and deny it to you and keep on pushing? The fact that you deleted your account is in part because you want to take down the archive of your pattern of tweets that, that mm -hmm. indicate that you have a long pattern of defending AOC in a way that right. AOC's burner I see might. why you would think that if you're just kind of casually looking at this, but if you look very closely, it's abundantly clear that this, why that person responded in the way, in a way as if they were AOC. They responded that way because they thought this other account was accusing them, was accusing Zaza Smoka of, <laughs> of funding Nazis in Ukraine when he meant to be accusing AOC, but they were both tagged in it. Yeah. That's and, and pretty self-explanatory. It doesn't look like there's been any Sorry. response from AOC. She doesn't seem to have tweeted or have, or liked any tweets or had any Twitter activity mm -hmm. since uh, March 30th. Um, you know, many people have come to her defense and explained a rationale for how this could have happened this way. Nico House seems to continue to believe that this is a burner account. And it certainly is true that some people have burner accounts and there have been some pretty embarrassing outings of burner accounts over the years. Um, so it's true. I think it's just true that it could be, you know, these things happen. It's just, there's a, this additional question of whether you think the tone of the Zaza Smoker tweets that have been uncovered are plausibly AOC as well. Do we think that, a, a, I mean, people have inside and outside personalities, public and private personalities, but do we believe that AOC is running around calling people see you next Tuesday uh, and being quite as aggressive as this account was? It's a little bit difficult for me to imagine. If true, it is, would be wild. Is there a Brianna Joy Gray <laughs> burner account No, out there? I've never, I, we were talking some about this, this a little uh, bit in the break. Some of this hate mail I'm getting being sent from the other chair. <laughs> I've always thought it was too risky to have a burner account. Um, when I had like pithier tweets back in the day, sometimes I would do them from the bad faith account. So there's some like plausible deniability. Mm. Um, but I never even really log into that account anymore. And you know, anything that's worth saying, I think is pretty much worth saying. And if you have a visceral reaction to something somebody said to you on the internet, just send the tweet to your friend, your trusted friends and partners, and say, isn't this person a, see you next Tuesday. <laughs> and there never has to be any evidence of that on the internet. I have a second uh, Twitter account that is uh, a parody account for a cartoon <laughs> character that I love, Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender. Scandalous. Prince, Prince Zuko parody Scandalous, I know, Robbie. huge scandal. He tweets as if he's involved in current US politics. Is I he, think is it's he, is he hilarious. Is he adding Matt Walsh as well? <laughs> Does not use, no, he. I'll tell you what a woman is. The joke is that he's woke. So he's, yes, yeah, so he might be going after Matt, Matt Walsh, but I don't think he would use the <laughs> You next Tuesday. Okay. That's a that's a that's a little that's a little out there. But uh, yeah, you know, this is a funny one, kind of. But you know, we criticize uh, ma the mainstream reporting for being wrong all the time, and people on the right do that a lot. And I'm just always kind of asking, pushing you know, very far right people uh, who are, I think, correctly scrutinizing mainstream narratives. You got to just be a little bit more. Yeah. A little bit more careful about what you deal. seize upon. Like this is not, this is just not true. Obviously. A sitting representative in our House of Representatives has taken a time out of her day to quote, to tweet this kind of like unsupported accusation and try to make a political issue of it. It is not a great time 
to yeah. be in American politics if this is kind of considered to be acceptable behavior. And we all know that, you know, the truth goes around the world, whatever. A lie goes around the world twice before the truth gets out of the garage or whatever the expression is. And there are people who are going to believe, if not this exact thing, yeah. That AOC, generally speaking, is duplicitous and hiding things on the internet because of this accusation that's being made by high-profile people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and 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 Ian Miles Chong and Matt Walsh and the rest. Yeah, they should uh, just admit that it's not her, and we should all move on because it's not her. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, The Hills' Zach Schoenfeld will join us again to give us a quick update on the Trump indictment saga. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm. And be nice to each other. Be civil on Twitter. <laughs> very important, I think. Very, very important indeed. We'll see you tomorrow. See ya.